So amazingly, I have no announcements. So we are going to turn to the word together. We've lifted up our praises to God. Now we're turning to the word of God to hear him speak to us as as we hear him through his word. So please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a it's find Proverbs. You can't miss Proverbs and then go to the next book after Proverbs. It's Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. We have so many reasons to give praise to you. In that sense, we can think of heaven being a constant worship service for the one who died for our countless, countless sins, bore them all on Calvary. So our love for you, oh, may it continue to grow. May we just be amazed at the grace you have shown us and may that compel us to all the more live for you in the freedom that you purchased for us by your blood. We long to be encouraged now as we hear you, our Father, speak to us through this book of Ecclesiastes. And so would you help us to have ears to hear. Show us Christ here in Ecclesiastes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in to give you what you think you need to live a meaningful and therefore a happy and successful life. Now, we may not directly ask ourselves this question. We don't sit down and say, what am I trusting? That's not something that we typically do. But I don't think any of us can escape wondering about it. This question is very fundamental to the book of Ecclesiastes. And the writer of this book wants you to reject The idea that you could ever answer that question apart from making God the focal point of your life. Consider how one attempts to to answer this question of meaning in life apart from God. First of all, you, you accept this is a personal quest. I have to find this out for myself. How it is that I'm going to find meaning in life. And typically, how does this go about? Well, it involves pursuing the many possibilities that we are presented with in this life. And in most cases, you'll, you'll start out with, a, with kind of a rose-colored, self-confident, but godless perspective. Right? You're, you're certain. That's what I mean by rose-colored and confident. You're certain that you will be able to find the necessary components in life of happiness and success. We all start out this way. And as we become convinced that, that, that something will make us happy, then we pursue that thing. And then when that something fails to satisfy us, or its satisfaction begins to wane, we move on to the next thing. And then we give that a try. And should that also fail, well, we we just move to the next thing and we try something else. And then over the course of a lifetime, you have trusted in many things that are common to men. Such things as knowledge, wisdom, pleasure, wealth, accomplishment, materialism, human justice, integrity. Even, even at the end, leaving a lasting legacy to the next generation. 
but one by one, each pursuit eventually gives way to the next. It makes me think of a time back when I was maybe eight years old and I was allowed to stay up for the first time past midnight. I was excited. I'd never been up that late before. And so I remember watching the the second hand tick, 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 getting closer to 12 and then watching it go past 12 and it was a brand new day. And after only a few seconds into that new day, I thought, is, is, is that it? Is, is that all there is? Did I miss something? Now, I can't tell you what I was really expecting to happen. I just know that, all, that what I felt was anticlimactic. I thought something magical was supposed to happen at midnight for some reason. How sad and how disheartening it must be for someone who comes to that moment in their life when they say to themselves, I, I, I guess that's it. I guess that's all there is. And if we're honest, aren't we all longing for life to have some sort of genuine significance and purpose? See, I think God has written this into our very Fabric, the very fabric of our being. And yet after a lifetime of searching, a lifetime of trying, how many people in this world are forced to settle for the idea that the only purpose of life seems to be that you just live it? That's it. You just live life. Beyond that, there is no purpose. Here we see some of the greatest benefits of this book. Ecclesiastes explores some of the less obvious consequences of the fall. And as a result of the fall, mankind is perpetually searching for a satisfaction they cannot find in temporal pursuits. And with this book, the writer, he hopes to give you all the reasons to reject the secular worldview by showing that to live life apart from God is to settle for a life of no purpose. But not because life does not have purpose. He wants to drive his readers to see not only that God is there, but He is good, He is generous, and He is sufficient. And you can't find genuine meaning in life apart from Him. So this is part two of our introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes that we're about to launch into. My title, same as last week, is All is Vanity. And it comes from the first two verses. If you'd, if you'd look there with me, let's read together verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And we began looking last week at some broad concepts of this book. We look first at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of five wisdom books in the Bible. Wisdom literature essentially deals with the way the world you know, works. 
It tackles big philosophical issues as well as practical wisdom for everyday living. Ecclesiastes, though, is wisdom of a different nature than what we are used to. If, if Proverbs focuses on the norms, the rules for life, well, Ecclesiastes focus on the, focuses on the exceptions to the rules. The writer offers his own mistaken views, his own pursuits as examples of how not to live. And he's wanting his readers to learn from his mistakes. He wants us to have more than just practical wisdom for daily life. He wants us to have a worldview that's able to make sense out of the experiences of life in a broken world and ultimately to be able to give God glory in the end. We also considered, secondly, the value of, of, of studying Ecclesiastes, the value of this book. Even though it was written several thousand years ago, it remains incredibly relevant. It speaks to the issues of our day. It speaks to the issues of any day because they are the issues of all mankind. We looked at a few reasons why this book is valuable for us today. We didn't get through them all. First, we saw that it honestly addresses the troubles of life. The writer acknowledges some of the difficult realities of life that we all deal with. So that when they come, our faith in God is not shaken. Secondly, Ecclesiastes, it graciously offers us lessons for life. The writer wants to impart the wisdom that he's gained from the meaning of life down to matters of daily living. And then thirdly, the book also plainly asks mankind's questions about life. The fact that the writer lived several thousand years ago, it makes no difference because as the writer wisely observes, there's nothing new under the sun. Times may change. Fashions and technologies may change, but the questions don't. What's the meaning of life? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? And this was where we stopped last week. So let's now resume with the fourth reason. The fourth reason why Ecclesiastes is both relevant and valuable for us to study. It's because Ecclesiastes wisely presents God's principles for life. It wisely presents God's principles for life. The author's hope is to encourage his readers to reject the secular worldview to make God the focal point of their lives. And he does this by speaking about the goodness of creation, about our own absolute dependence on God, who has both established a time for everything under heaven, but he has also set eternity in our hearts. And so it's on that basis that he then gives very specific instructions about everyday life issues, things like money, sex, power, even the most practical issue of all of life, death. We need the principles that we find in Ecclesiastes because they're given by God to help us live wisely. So, 
I gathered those first four principles that I reviewed and then this last one that I just gave you. I gathered them from Philip Ryken. And I thought he did such a great job of laying them out for us that I just gave them to you. This book is relevant. It's valuable. Why? Because it honestly addresses the troubles of life. It graciously offers lessons for life. It plainly asks mankind's questions about life. And it wisely presents God's principles for life. And to those, I wanted to add a fifth reason. Ecclesiastes indirectly preaches the gospel of life. Ecclesiastes indirectly preaches the gospel of life. See, Ecclesiastes, along with the other wisdom books, it doesn't focus on God's redemptive acts. It's absent in these books are the great themes of biblical history. The Exodus, the covenants, the conquest, so forth, right? None of that is in these books. God is not shown in Ecclesiastes as the deliverer. He's not shown as the lawgiver. Instead, emphasis is placed on creation and humanity's place in it. But that's not to say that Christ or his gospel is at all absent from Ecclesiastes. Now, speaking as a whole, the Bible has one ultimate plan, one ultimate plot, one ultimate champion, one ultimate king. And this is as, as true for Ecclesiastes as it is for every other book in both the Old and the New Testaments. Jesus told the Bible experts of his day. We read this in in John chapter 5. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, these. And remember, he's speaking of the Old Testament at this point. What we would call the Old Testament. It was their Bible. He says, it's these that testify about me. You're missing the point, Pharisees. This is speaking about me. He says, if you believed Moses, right? The books that Moses wrote. You would believe me because he wrote about me. Wow. So from beginning to end, your Bible is this epic story about Jesus. He's revealed in the New Testament. He's concealed in the Old. Another way to say it is he's anticipated in the old and then he is manifested, proclaimed and explained in the new. But it's all about him. So Jesus and the gospel are absolutely in Ecclesiastes. So where do we find them? Well, first of all, wisdom, right? This is wisdom literature. Wisdom finds its goal and fulfillment in Christ. The Gospels portray Jesus as the wise man who who speaks and acts in the tradition of Israel's wisdom teachers. Jesus, though, he goes, though, he goes even further. I don't just speak wisdom. He claims to be the wisdom of God. In Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus references events that are described in first Kings 10 when the Queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem to see if what she'd heard about the riches and the wisdom of Solomon, if they were true. 
And then he, so he's clearly speaking about himself when he says this. He says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. However great, however wise Solomon was, Jesus is saying, I am greater. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus called himself the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul wrote of of Jesus, he said, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some, not most. All the wisdom and the knowledge of God are hidden in Jesus Christ. Christ is the source for all the wisdom that we need. And so since Ecclesiastes is God's wisdom, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. And then secondly, the gospel is here in Ecclesiastes. However, the author, he doesn't preach the gospel directly, but I would say I, I would describe it as he preaches it indirectly. It's, it's like looking now. Some of us don't know this except maybe through Instagram filters or something like that. But there used to be a thing called negatives for photos when you got prints, right? I believe it or not, I still have all the negatives of all the all. You know, it's like one day, what if all of our pictures burn down? You know, the only way I could get them back is because I have all these negatives. I can't get myself to throw them away. Those negatives are what produce the actual pictures that you print out. But, you know, if you've ever looked at a negative or if you turn that negative filter in, in your phone or Instagram or something like that, everything, everything flips to the opposite. It's like everything is there, but it's the opposite color wise. It's the opposite in color and in contrast of what it should be. And so even though there is no direct mention in Ecclesiastes of Christ, there's no direct mention of the cross. The good news of the gospel is presented how? It's by exposing the inescapable void created by an approach to life apart from God. See, if you choose to live your life apart from God, like a negative image, your life will be the opposite of what it should be. You will have things, many things maybe, but they will not satisfy. You will have pleasure. But it won't last. Monday always comes. You may have labored to build an inheritance. But you pass it on to someone who squanders it all and you can do nothing about it. All that hard work passed on to a fool. You may have done great things. Really good and great things in your life. But you will soon be forgotten. All these things should mean more than they do. But see, apart from Christ, they can't. To approach life independent of Christ, it leads to the same conclusion that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us right here. All is vanity. It's vanity. And so given its honest addressing of troubles, of Gracious lessons, plain questions, wise principles, and this indirect presentation of why you need Christ. Ecclesiastes has much value for us as those who are trying to follow Christ in a fallen world. 
But can you see that it's also a book, though, for skeptics, for agnostics, as well as people who realize they need genuine answers about life. And this book ultimately points us to Christ and it invites people to enter a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that leads not only to purpose, but to eternal life. So, if you now look at verse 1, it starts out, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So, we can see the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. I've told you about the value that we're going to find in it. But, the, but before we can go any further, we've got to consider the identity of the preacher. Who is this preacher that's being mentioned here? Who wrote this book? He says, well, the word here, the word here for preacher, it's the Hebrew word Koheleth. So some, some people just say Koheleth. Some translations just write Koheleth. The word can be translated also as the teacher. It can be the philosopher or it can be the spokesman. All of, all of these are perfectly acceptable. Now, teacher, I can certainly see why people would choose that one. At the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 9, it says that he taught the people knowledge. So he's a teacher, no doubt. However, I think, I think preacher really is the best term overall, the best way we should understand this idea of this word, Koheleth. The root word of Koheleth, the root word, it means to gather, to assemble, to collect. It's, it's, when it's used as a verb, it refers to the gathering or the assembly of a community of people, especially for the worship of God. In fact, it's with this meaning in mind that the book was given the name by which we know it. The English word that we know this as is Ecclesiastes. Now, if you just look at that name, it really doesn't mean anything to you. It's just a transliteration right from the Greek, from the Greek word behind this. It's Ecclesiastes. Okay, that's all we know it as. But, but see, <clears throat> that kind of resembles how tough this one is to nail down exactly what's being said here. So they just called it the Greek word Ecclesiastes. But why this word? Well, it's because Ecclesiastes is a form of the Greek word. You can, might, we might recognize the word ekklesia. Ekklesia, which is the, it's the common New Testament term for the word church. So an ekklesia is not the building in which we are at. It's all of you. It's God's people gathered together. That's the church. That's the ekklesia of God. So this title of Ecclesiastes, well, it's simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Koheleth. Literally, this word Koheleth, it means one who speaks in the ecclesia, in the assembly, in the congregation. So without understanding, I think he's rightly called here the preacher. Now, the writer gets more specific here by identifying the preacher as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, I know who comes to my mind when I think of the son of David who was king in Jerusalem. Who comes to your mind? Solomon. Now, you may or may not know this, but the authorship of Ecclesiastes is a hotly debated topic among scholars. Some say it is Solomon. Some say it's a later writer who's pretending to write in the, you know, the vein of, of Solomon. Some say it's a later work composed of several editors, not just one person. 
But see, if we take what is said here at face value, it has to be Solomon. It has to be Solomon. He was an instructor, a teacher, as we see from the book of Proverbs, which which he says, I wrote Proverbs. This title, the son of David, if we go by that, we have about a dozen choices. But king in Jerusalem, well, that nails it down to just three choices because only three kings ruled in Jerusalem. Saul, the first king, David, who came after him, and then Solomon, who was David's son. Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, he did come next, but he ruled over a divided Israel, a divided kingdom. And so since it it can't be Saul and it can't be David because it's a son of David, Solomon is the only immediate son of King David who ruled after him in Jerusalem. And this means that Ecclesiastes then, what is this book? Well, it's it's Solomon's autobiographical account of what God taught him from his futile attempt to live his life apart from God. Now, no, he he isn't mentioned here. It doesn't say the words of the preacher, the son of David, Solomon, the king in Jerusalem. It does not say his name. And that's why some scholars think, well, it's not Solomon because he introduced himself in Proverbs, but not here. Now, I'm okay with that, though. That doesn't bother me, especially given the way that he describes himself. Look at verse 16 of chapter one. He says, behold, I've magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Again, who comes to your mind? If you know this description, you think, well, that's Solomon. So I'm not going to say much more really about why some think it, it isn't Solomon or can't be Solomon. But I've read that some have reason to believe it was written after Solomon's time, like I said, by those who wanted to write as if they were Solomon. In other words, everybody knows Solomon is wise, so if I just write like I'm Solomon, you'll want to listen to me, is kind of the idea. Who better to illustrate the futility of life without God than the man who had everything that anyone could ever want, and yet it was not enough, right? If such things couldn't satisfy the richest, wisest king of all time, well, it's not going to satisfy you. Learn from Solomon. But see, my response to that idea, this idea that it's someone writing as if they were Solomon, my response to that is if it isn't actually Solomon writing, you can't assume that he would come to that conclusion. Can you? Can can you go ask him? Do you have anything that you can refer to that would tell you what Solomon thought? We only have this book. And if you can't know that this is Solomon, well, that removes all the point of this book. He really was the wisest man and the wisest king. God gave him riches beyond imagination. He had it all and in nothing of it satisfied. It led to despair. That's the exclamation point on this book. It was Solomon who came to these conclusions and is sharing it with you. Not someone who's acting like he's Solomon. This is Solomon talking. So the most natural way to read Ecclesiastes is with Solomon as the preacher. But, you know, even if I am wrong, even if these other scholars who are wiser than me are right, what do we know? These are still the very words of God. These are words that are inspired by the person of the Holy Spirit, who is God. 
And the preacher even tells us in his final statements that the wisdom that we found in this book, if you look at the end, it says this book, the wisdom has been given, he says, by the one shepherd. Chapter 12, verse 11, meaning Christ himself. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's sermon to us, the gathered people of God, imparting to them the wisdom that is given by Christ, God's one shepherd of his people. Now, if indeed the preacher is Solomon, and I think it is, this is the man who took the throne after his father, David. And at the time that he became king, it says in the book First Kings, in chapter 3, it says Solomon loved the Lord. He was walking in the statutes of his father David. The Lord appeared to him in a dream. You know this story, right? He asked Solomon, what is it that he wished to give him? You know, he's a young man taking over the kingdom of a great nation. And his desire that he expressed to God, it was to give him an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. That's what he asked God for. And this request pleased the Lord who then told Solomon, he said, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And over his reign... Both his wisdom and his riches, they became legendary. Uh, I mentioned the Queen of Sheba earlier. She traveled to Jerusalem to see if the tales that she had heard about Solomon's riches and wealth and wisdom were true. And this is what she told Solomon. She said, I didn't believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. I didn't believe the report I heard, but you, you are beyond that. And so after having lived his life and the wisdom and the riches that God gave him, what is it that Solomon, the preacher, has to say to his students? What does he have to say to us? What great wisdom is Solomon? Imparting to us, look at verse 2, <laughs> vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that leads us now to look at the message of Ecclesiastes, and it's simple, all is vanity. The message of Ecclesiastes is that all is vanity. A bit of a surprising beginning, isn't it? To the memoir of the wisest person who has ever and will ever live. See, in these three words, all is vanity. The preacher takes this, this whole sum of human existence and he declares it to be utter vanity. So this phrase, all is vanity, it, it serves essentially as the preacher's thesis statement. It's the theme of all that he has to say. And so from this point on, over the next 12 chapters, Solomon is going to prove his point. And, and then sometimes it's in painful detail. 
He doesn't sway from this assessment. In fact, at the very end, he comes back to it again in verse 8 of chapter 12, and he just repeats himself. When he's done, he says, here's my thesis. He proves his thesis, and then he comes back again. He says, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, this word vanity, it's the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel. And this word, kind of like Kohelet, it's not an easy word for us to define. But it is absolutely central to the message of Ecclesiastes. You may recall uh, in reading in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, remember where he talks about the creation being subject to futility? You could use the word vanity there as well. A couple hundred years before Jesus came, a group of 70 scholars, they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That was the primary language of the day. They wanted people to be able to read the scriptures because there were not as many people learning Hebrew. So they translated into the lingua franca, the, 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 the language of the day. We know this now as the Septuagint. And the word that Paul uses in the Greek in Romans 8 where he describes the creation being subject to futility, it's the same Greek word from the Septuagint that was used for Havel, this word of vanity. So in that sense, Paul is saying the whole world is subject to vanity. The NIV, if you have the NIV, you'll notice it says meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Then the NET Bible says futile, utterly futile. But taken literally, this word Havel, it refer, it, 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 the word literally means vapor, air, steam, breath. So used metaphorically, it refers to things that are, are ephemeral, enigmatic, insubstantial, elusive, superficial, contradictory even, unreliable. That's a range of meaning for all this. And something that is Havel, it can't be grasped. It can't be controlled. The best way to picture the idea behind Havel is like what you had perhaps this morning when you got off a cup of coffee and Havel is the steam that is coming off your cup of coffee. Or if it was a little colder and you walked outside and you <sighs> breathed and you saw the vapor come out of your mouth. That's, that's the literal idea behind Havel. It doesn't last. It's there, right? You saw it. You see the steam. You see your breath. But just as quickly as it came, it's gone. Life is Havel. Life is vapor-like. It's there one minute, and then it's gone the next. Okay, uh, Group participation here. Let's do a little exercise to illustrate Havel. Okay? Everyone do this with me. Take in a breath and hold it. Breathe it out. That illustrates Havel. That illustrates just how quickly that life passes you by. Not just today, but all of our days. From beginning to their end. 
And if you, if you find that hard to believe, you're probably under 30 years old. All you need to do is talk to someone like me who's over 50 years old, who remembers all these things from my life like they were yesterday. I remember when my son was, first son was born. He's married now on the verge of starting his own family. I'm about to become a grandparent at some point, Lord willing. All these things are just happening. And I can remember when I was your age, when I was your age, when I was your age, and, and all of that. But it's going by so fast. So in this sense, all this vanity, this phrase, it's pointing to the futility of life in this fallen world. Because, I, see, I know this. I know it's going to end. It's not like it's just going to keep going. It's going to end. And then what? Everything that we experience in a day, let alone a lifetime, it's just going to be frustrated with futility. Havel describes the paradox of life in this world. Or, or as Solomon says, life under the sun. It's the unavoidable conclusion. Havel is the unavoidable conclusion every honest person eventually reaches after all the attempts of finding satisfaction in the world apart from God. Money, pleasure, power, whatever that thing is that you think should satisfy you, it doesn't in the end because it cannot. The best man that can, can do under the sun is to settle for the disappointing realization that there is no ultimate purpose to be found in the world. The very best that man can find or accomplish in this life, it will not satisfy and it will eventually fade away and it will be forgotten by the generations to come. Oh, happy day. Right? That's, that's the bluesy part of Ecclesiastes that we all look at and go, should this even be in my Bible? What happened to I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? See, we need this wisdom, don't we? Because it's still true. Think of the many countless millions of people. Think with me about this. There have been millions of people who have lived full lives in this world. They labored to provide for their families, just like you do. They weathered life's storms. Right? They loved. They were loved. They had gains. They had losses. They made good choices. They made bad choices. They built things. They destroyed things. They lived and they died. They were once here, just as you are right now. And now they're gone. And here's the thing. You know absolutely nothing about them, and nor do you care. And those who did know and loved them, like some that you know and love who have died, guess what? They've died too. And the ones after them died too. And so there are people who are absolutely just gone. Gone. You want to feel the effects of Havel? Go into a cemetery that's over a hundred years old and look at a tombstone and go, that guy lived and died. He lived 88 years. I know nothing about him, and probably anybody who does know anything about him is gone too. They're probably buried somewhere here or somewhere there, or they're created and they're gone. Nobody knows who this person is but God. That's Havel. 
That's a realistic view of life. And that's going to be you. And that's going to be me. Not long from now. It's over. Imagine yourself building a sandcastle on the beach. You could spend ten minutes on that sandcastle. Or you could spend ten hours on that sandcastle. And in the end, it's all going to be swept away when the tide comes in. As if you were never even there. You, all your work, however great, however small, you will be gone and you will be forgotten in the end as if you weren't even here. And Solomon calls that Hazel. But the man who has God at the center of his life in this Havel of existence, he can find true joy. He can find happiness and purpose and satisfaction in life's simple activities as well as in the midst of life's difficulties. See, life's greatest pleasures, apart from God, they result in nothing more than what Solomon calls striving after wind. And while the man with God at the center of his life, he can enjoy the most basic activities of life, like sitting at a table with your children and your family with some good food, laughing and eating together. He says that's satisfaction and joy in life with God at the center of it. It's that simple, but yet that profound. But yet the richest, wisest man in the world sitting at the most sumptuous feast who's not focused on God at the center of his life. It's like, Havel. The next day comes and it's gone. Pleasure doesn't last. And don't forget about the greatest vanity of all, death. There's nothing as empty or as final as death. Death is the vanity of vanities. And in the midst of all of this vanity, there's God. At the bottom of all this vanity is a sovereign God. Through the preacher's cynicism through his frustrations and his questions, he never gives up his faith in God. You wonder about it sometimes, but it's there. He's as frustrated with God as he is with the world that God has made. And as I told you, this book is relevant. It's relatable, right? Because we're not supposed to feel this way as Christians. We're not supposed to feel this way as those who trust God. But we can And we often do. The preacher sure did. So are you tempted to think that this book is depressing? Well, do you think a book like this doesn't belong in your Bible? Is it too pessimistic? Is it too dark? Well, what wisdom can we gain from someone who sees life this way? Much. We can gain a lot. So lastly, let's consider the goal for the reader. What's the goal for the reader? Well, as I hope you'll come to see, in the midst of the sober view that he takes of life, the preacher never loses hope in the goodness of God or the lasting joy of the gifts that he gives. The key, the key is to see that it's not the gifts themselves that bring joy. 
But they can only be enjoyed if God is at the center of your life. That's the key. Because God is the giver of many good things. But without Him, those good things turn to bitterness in your mouth eventually. When we see that everything earthly is futile, we will only put our hope in the everlasting God who is the source of all true joy and satisfaction. And that is what makes this book, in my eyes, so evangelistic. There's a phrase that the preacher uses over and over to help us to see our need to hope in God. It's this phrase I mentioned earlier, under the sun. So this is a poetic description of everything done in life, even from one generation to the next. Anything ever done on this earth has only ever been done under our one sun. So life under the sun is life outside the garden, but on this side of heaven. So it's life in between the two paradises. Under the sun, it refers to life in a broken world. And if you only ever live your life under the sun, if that's all you ever know, and you never lift your eyes up to see the beauty and the glory of God in heaven, then life will leave you empty and unhappy. <coughs> Excuse me. But with God at the center of your life, you will see the meaning of life. You will see the beauty of its pleasures, the eternal significance of everything that you do, whether big or small. And understanding the vanity of all things, that's what leads us to the wisdom that we need most. Look, now, jump back to chapter 12, verse 13. See, Ecclesiastes, I would say it was intended to be a sermon that was listened to in one sitting. And so we're going to need to go again and again to the conclusion we need to do this regularly in order to grab the meaning as we break down this book sermon by sermon by sermon, right? Because it was supposed to lead you to a conclusion in one sitting, but we're going to hit it week after week after week. So we're going to have to regularly go to this conclusion to remind ourselves, right? We don't want to miss the main point. Each sermon, we can picture it as a piece of a puzzle that we're putting in place. So in order to make sense of each piece, we need to have that box top right there and, and see where it goes and see what the big picture is. So look at what he says in verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Now, you've heard the phrase, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, that comes from Solomon's other book, Proverbs. But the fear of God is not only the beginning, it's also the end of all wisdom. Fearing God is the goal of your existence. Knowing and enjoying Him properly is the blessed purpose of life. But you'll never understand this unless you first see the emptiness of life without God. The preacher's conclu conclusion that, that all is vanity, well, that is truly depressing, but it's the true assessment of what life is like apart from the grace of God. 
Life apart from God is to settle for life with no purpose. But not because life does not have a purpose. No, God is the key to life. Can you see that learning this lesson about life, that it's going to draw you closer to Christ? See, life apart from God is vain for a reason. Sin. But on the cross, Christ suffered for the curse of sin and all of its futility. And when He rose from the grave, not only did He conquer death, but He undid all the emptiness of life. Ecclesiastes shows us our need for the Gospel. So here is my summary message of this book. This is the reason why I want us to study it and learn from it. I usually give you a statement, right, about a sermon. This is what this is about. Here's the main point of my sermon today. Well, here's the main point of my introduction because it's the main point of Ecclesiastes. This point, I I hope, is going to be shown true each week that we study it. Here it is. Only in Christ will man find true meaning and happiness in life under the sun. Only... In Christ will man find true meaning and happiness in life under the sun. And so may God bless our efforts to grow in wisdom through this book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have, you care for us as you do to impart wisdom that we need for life under the sun. Our sin has led to the vanity of life, but Christ has undone its vanity because He has paid for our sin and He has conquered the ultimate of vanity, death itself. He truly is our Savior both in life and in death. Would you please bless our upcoming months in this book? Make it profitable, not only for us as your children, but through it, I pray, would you draw others to yourself, showing them the vanity of life apart from God. And that true meaning and happiness is found only in Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.